As a heads up, listeners, you'll want to stick around to the end of the show today for some news about the gaggle. Governor Doug Ducey heads the Republican Governors Association, offering him a measure of national relevance in the final year of his tenure in Arizona. But here in the Grand Canyon state, the race to replace him is in full swing with no one really offering anything like a de facto Ducey third term. Today we're going to talk about the Republican and Democratic candidates for Governor and Secretary of State, who they are, and how they stack up heading into early voting for the August 2nd primary. If you haven't paid close attention until now, that's okay. Today, the Arizona Republic Stacey Barchinger and Mary Jo Pitzel will tell you what you need to know. Last week, we explored the legislative primary races of note. Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Each week, we dig deeper into our state's political stories with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on Arizona's political news. I'm Ron Hansen, a national political reporter for the Arizona Republic. For the first time in eight years, the governor's race is wide open, and for the first time in a long time, the Secretary of State's race is also attracting a lot of attention. There's a subcurrent to both races on the Republican side, and maybe on the Democratic side as well. Donald Trump. So let's start with the gubernatorial primary races and Stacey Barchinger. Stacey, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. So set the table for our listeners. Tell us who's running for governor on the Republican side and who they are. So we have five uh, hopefuls on the GOP side to replace Doug Ducey. Probably our listeners have heard of um, at least three of them. First, we have Carrie Lake. She's the former Fox 10 news anchor, um, worked for decades here in Phoenix, was on the nightly news. She is what I would call the Trumpiest candidate. She has the former president's endorsement and is similar to him in, in style. We also have Karen Taylor Robeson. She's a former lobbyist, former member of the Board of Regents, which oversees our universities, and uh, sort of came up in the business world in Phoenix, um, worked in development, also had her own consulting firm. We have Matt Salmon, the former congressman who had also run for governor in the early 2000s. Um, he is more policy-driven candidate in this field. And then we have two other candidates who um, will be on the ballot, Scott Neely. He owns a concrete business in Mesa. And Paula Tuliani-Zen, who is a former businesswoman um, who lives in Scottsdale. What have the polls and the campaigns told us about who we think is the front runner as we approach early voting? Yeah, so obviously lots of people are just now tuning into the race, but we've been paying attention to these polls for much longer, um, a year at this point, actually. And pretty consistently, polls have shown that Lake is in the lead. Although we have seen a lot of shifting in the last month, Karen Taylor Robeson has risen in some of the polls within the margin of error to really be competitive with Lake. Some reasons why that might be, I mean, Carrie Lake has been on TV for decades. People know who she is. She also is campaigning quite hard. She's out there every single day in front of groups of people, whether it's, you know, in someone's backyard with 10 people or at a rally where she falsely claims the election was stolen that draws hundreds of people. So this race has felt like, and the polls seem to show, that Lake is the one that everyone is sort of chasing on this. Um, 
Why has she been able to command so much attention to this point? Is it her media background? Is it just her closeness to Donald Trump at this point? What is it about Carrie Lake that has sort of put her uh, in the poll position? I mean, I think it's definitely both of those things. Um, She is very charismatic. She's great with people and on a stage. She also is willing to be aggressive on like social media. She has this tendency to say things that get a reaction, you know, sort of these false claims about the election or some more outlandish things. Like she has said multiple times that the financier Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. Um, So these things that are designed to get a reaction from people and get more attention on her. You don't win campaigns on Twitter, but a lot of the times those can get attention in other ways. At the same time, that attention has brought scrutiny from her opponents who have seen plenty of avenues to attack her. Um, We know that she was a former Democrat. She or her family, I suppose, had donated to Barack Obama, and that has become a campaign issue um, for both Karen Taylor Robeson and Matt Salmon to go after her. Um, Salmon has questioned Carrie's credentials on guns, um, whether she really is a diehard NRA supporter or not. Okay, if Lake has Trump's endorsement, Taylor Robeson has money, lots of it. How is she using her resources to make the case to voters now for her? Yeah, so Karen Taylor Robeson has a lot of money and has shown that she is willing to spend it to win this race. Um, There's a little caveat here. We only know the numbers through the end of March um, because of how the state requires reporting. But by that time, Taylor Robeson had put in just shy of $4 million of her own money into her campaign and spent over $4 million on advertising. I know that she's spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a week on advertising, particularly TV. She came into the race. A lot of people don't know who she was, especially competing with Carrie Lake, who's on TV every single day from her former career as a journalist. So Karen Taylor Robeson really needs that money to get her her face, and her platform out to voters. Her advertising so far has really focused on border issues. She's making that a centerpiece of her campaign and just recently has started attacking Carrie Lake and her history. There's a new ad out last week that features former Governor Jan Brewer, um, who you know famously pointed the finger at Barack Obama, noting that Lake was an Obama supporter. So this is the avenue for Karen to challenge Lake's status as the front runner. Okay, let's talk about Matt Salmon for a moment. On paper, Salmon should be a top-tier candidate. He's a former member of Congress. He has a very conservative record. And he's been here before. He was the 2002 nominee. What are people saying about his campaign at this point? What is his message to voters this time around? And why isn't it caught on more? Well, Salmon is a policy-driven candidate. I mean, in the field, he has the most extensive policy proposals for what Arizona under his leadership would look like. I think it's fair to say that post-Trump, politics is totally different. And whereas a policy-driven campaign may have resonated with voters before, it's not that it's not resonating now, but you have this other sort of like bombastic edge to politics that has that he has just not necessarily been able to compete with. There are a lot of questions. Um, some of our own columnists are asking these questions. Political insiders are asking the questions of if he has a real path 
forward ahead of the primary or if he is now in the race and will draw voters away from the other two candidates. I don't have any evidence that Matt Salmon will leave the race, however, before August. Okay, so you've made reference to policy uh, proposals by Matt Salmon. Let's talk about policy here for just a moment. Is there anything substantively notable about these candidates and their policy proposals? Uh, Do they want to do something on day one? Have they threatened to take something away that would meaningfully change the way Arizonans uh, see their, their government operating at the state level? Is there anything on that front that is really of substantial interest? I mean, I think we know that Republican primary voters care a lot about immigration and the border. And so we've seen each of these three leading candidates really highlight what they would do. And this is also one of the issues where we see some differences in what their proposals are. Carrie Lake has championed this like Trump-backed plan to declare an invasion and use all sorts of state law enforcement resources to actually deport people at the border. It is an occasionally violent plan where she calls to bomb drug tunnels. That is the extreme plan, um, and it is also legally questionable. You have Karen Taylor Robeson, who has like a very measured six-point plan that in a lot of ways is like what Governor Ducey has done, more National Guard troops at the border, more funding. Um, And then you have Matt Salmon, who is somewhere in between those two things, who wants to, you know, maybe use tent cities to house migrants if there's not resources available for them, wants to arm National Guard troops. So sort of in this spectrum on the right of border plans, you, you have the candidates separating themselves in what they would do. All right. Let's shift the spectrum to the left, if we can, for just a moment. Tell us about the Democrats who are running and and who they are. Yeah, we have two candidates um, still in the race at this point. Uh, Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, she was elected to her post in 2018. Um, Previously to that, served in the Senate and the House of Representatives here in Arizona, was a social worker prior to that. She is probably well known to our listeners for her role in her national platform defending the 2020 election here in Arizona. Um, We also have Marco Lopez. He is the former uh, very young mayor of Nogales, the border city. He went on to work in Janet Napolitano's administration and then followed her to Washington, D.C. to work in Customs and Border Protection. Since the Obama administration, he has made a career for himself in private business ventures here in the state of Arizona. Katie Hobbs has always seemed like the front runner in this race, but it's been a bumpy ride, it seems, uh, in this process. Tell us about the campaign controversies for her. And most important question, perhaps, is will any of them really matter for the primary and will they matter much in November? Yeah, so there have been a couple of things along the way in the last year or so. So she's really stood out because she has this seemingly unending access to national news programs to talk about 2020. Now, more locally, we know that there has been this sort of drama along the way. Last November, there was a verdict in a high-profile case where Hobbs was involved in the firing of a Senate staffer uh, back in 2015. And this staffer, Talonia Adams, had filed a legal complaint that she was terminated and discriminated against as a black woman 
because her salary was tens of thousands of dollars less in the Senate than that of white male peers. Katie Hobbs was the party leader at the time. She has acknowledged she participated in this decision to fire Adams. But part of the controversy is how Hobbs handled this. There have been two verdicts in the case. She had apologized years and years ago. There's another verdict in November, and she just at first tries to dismiss it, tries to shift the blame, tries to say she wasn't involved, and then it took weeks for her to go on the record as apologizing for her role in this firing, which in the meantime gave Talonia Adams weeks to hold press conferences calling out Katie Hobbs and saying voters should not support her. More recently, uh, Marco Lopez, the other candidate in the race, and former state representative Aaron Lieberman, who dropped out a couple of weeks ago, have called out Hobbs for kind of staying hidden from voters. They are, you know, they are hitting the pavement. They are going to these district meetings. They are talking to voters. And she just isn't as present on the campaign trail as they are. And so they have been calling her out for that, saying she is scared to debate them because she's not participating in a PBS debate, um, saying that she's not responsive to voters, kind of painting her as arrogant with her status in the race. It remains to be seen if this matters to primary voters. I mean, I think we understand that Hobbs has a pretty good lead, but we don't know what voters want until August 2nd. Certainly, if she advances to the general, these are going to be issues that you're going to see her Republican opponent highlight. You know, where is Katie Hobbs? Is she changing her position on things? Does she really care about voters here in Arizona or does she care about going on MSNBC? So given all of that, along with Lopez's political record and his governmental service record, why hasn't he been able to get more traction in this environment? And is his presence in the primary just hurting Hobbs at this point? Is it is it helping him? You know, people I'm talking to really think that Marco Lopez is a solid candidate. He's um, very well-spoken. When I go to events, I talk to voters and they like how he connects with them. They say that he basically talks like a normal person, not a politician. Um, he does have a lot of different experience in government service, in the private sector. He's a Democrat that has worked on border issues, um, which isn't super easy to come by in Arizona. But, I mean, Hobbs has just dominated. She's on TV all the time talking about 2020. She has three times as much money saved up going into, you know, this phase of the race. She, I mean, she just has the platform that he has not been able to generate, although he is out there every single day trying to connect with voters. Same question for the Democrats that I posed for the Republicans. Are there any notable policy differences that really sort of uh, should be front and center as Democrats consider their choices for the governor's race? I mean, honestly, there's not a lot of huge differences. I mean, they're both talking about policy, but they're sort of democratic issues. We haven't seen a lot of distinction between these two candidates on policy that would impact Arizonans. Okay, final question. As we enter the final weeks before early voting begins, any thoughts on what could still change the basic trajectory of either of these races in in this last stretch here, the most critical stretch in, in many ways? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll see a lot more spending on ads and a shift towards those ads being attacking the other candidates. Um, 
you know, Karen Taylor Robeson paid for ads that feature Carrie Lake's picture next to Barack Obama's picture instead of the posters that Carrie is posting that have her with Trump. So stuff like that. I'm also sort of tracking uh, Governor Ducey possibly making an endorsement in this race. He has said that he might do that in the primary um which I think would be meaningful. It's also complicated because of his relationship with Donald Trump and the grip that Trump still has on Republican voters. But I think we could see that have an impact as people make their decisions of who to vote for. Stacy, thank you for chatting with us. If listeners want to keep up with you on Twitter, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at S Barchinger. It's S-B-A-R-C-H-E-N-G-E-R. Now let's bring in Mary Jo Pitzel, who has been keeping tabs on a race with unusual interest, the Secretary of State's contest. Mary Jo, welcome back to The Gaggle. Happy to be here. So tell us who's running to oversee the state's elections for the Republicans. Well, we have a four-person field um, led most likely by Representative Mark Fincham, who is a Republican out of Oro Valley and a key proponent of the Stop the Steal um, storyline. Representative Shauna Bullock, who um, also has some interesting legislative history related to the 2020 election in her uh, biography. State Senator Michelle Eugenti Rita from Scottsdale, who has chaired elections committees um, and has run a number of election-related measures, not in the extreme category, more procedural changes to the process. Uh, advertising executive Bo Lane with, from uh, the firm Lane Terra Lever. This time last year, we were absorbed by the state Senate-ordered review of Maricopa County's presidential ballots. That exercise ultimately determined President Joe Biden won the state's most populous county by a few more votes than the certified results from the county. And yet, claims of a stolen election still cast a long shadow on this race. How has 2020 shaped the 2022 Secretary of State Republican primary? Well, it's definitely made election integrity the key theme, and it keeps relitigating 2020. Um, a couple of examples. Um, there's a lot of national attention that's coming to this race because of Fincham's candidacy. Um, already 1.7 million in independent expenditures um, have been spent to advocate against his election. That's coming from um, the Move On organization. Um, it's, you know, he's got Trump's endorsement. So that's, I don't know if that will bring Trump to the state for this race, but um, it, it's focused a lot of national attention on it. And we keep talking again about 2020. So you noted that Fincham has Trump's endorsement. What else is he saying in this race? Is, are, are there other issues? Is there anything that he is saying that you think distinguishes him from others who have also sort of made election integrity the theme of their their interest? Yeah, I think uh, most prominently um, he wants to get rid of early voting. He is a proponent of all voting on one ballot on one day, hand counted at the precinct, no machines. That's uh, nobody else's touting that line to, uh, to that extent. Um, he wants to have a special type of ballot paper that would have all these provisions in it that would prevent fraud so that you can know that your ballot is, is actually your ballot and it has been counted. 
He's joined with Kerry Lake in a lawsuit to get rid of any kind of electronic ballot tabulation machines. That's in U.S. federal court, and last week they filed a motion for a preliminary injunction. So this would halt before, um, arguably before, the primary election on August 2nd. You know, he's talked about some other aspects of the office as well, saying that he knows fraud very well, but he also knows customer service very well and would make it a more customer-oriented office. Um, he says that the Secretary of State's office needs to get back more to focusing on people and not on machines. Eugenie Rita really built her legislative record around making voting harder. She has been involved in election-related matters for some time now, and Bollock is connected to U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, whom the New Yorker's Jane Meyer noted is the godfather to their child. These women have pretty conservative credentials. Why haven't they broken through in this race? Well, I think the main reason is that Fincham's got such a high profile and he's got prolific fundraising. He's drawn small dollar donations from across the nation, um, somewhat similar to State Senator Wendy Rogers. He has nearly had nearly a billion dollars raised as of mid-April, which is the latest date for which we've got data right now. Uh, Eugenie Rita and Bullock, just they don't have a lot of fundraising. We haven't seen any kind of media advertising from them. I don't, I've just started to see a few campaign signs you know, to get that name recognition thing going. Um, they just can't seem to get much lift off in, uh, in the wake of Fincham's very dominance of this. And then you have Bo Lane coming along, who's, you know, very much playing the outsider card. I mean, he is an outsider. He's never run for public office before. And he's backed by a lot of what you might call, you know, the establishment Republican community here. Uh, he's gotten a lot of maximum $5,300 donations from deep-pocketed donors who are local, as well as endorsements from former Governor Symington and former Governor Jam Brewer. Okay, if the Republican race feels like it's Fincham's to lose, Democrats have a race that feels less clear-cut. Who's running on their side of the ticket? This is a two-man race. You've got former Maricopa County recorder Adrian Fontes and House Minority Leader Reggie Boulding from Levine. Fontes had some controversies during his one term administering Maricopa County's elections, but the ballot review last year wound up pretty nearly with the same numbers he had, and his Republican successor largely defended his practices. So what's Boulding's case for choosing him over Fontes? Bolding is leaning a lot on his legislative experience, saying, you know, it's all about leadership. He knows how to get things done. He sort of obliquely makes a reference to the importance of fighting for something as opposed to against something, which is sort of a slight at Fontes, who has a more fiery uh, kind of style. He points to his experience as the House Minority Leader for the last two years, and he was in uh, leadership for two years before that as well plus his um, running of a couple of nonprofits that focus a lot on voter registration to say he knows how to connect with voters and he knows how to lead people. Okay, so let's do the opposite now. In Adrian Fontes's case, he's someone who has some election experience. And what is his argument for choosing him over Bolding, who has sort of knows his way around the Capitol more? Very clearly, Fontes is pointing to his role as county recorder and the 2020 election. 
Um, as you noted, the Senate ballot review really validated the work that that office did and uh, did not find anything that would suggest that the election was stolen. He knows the, the process, you know, pretty much inside and out. He's done some innovations and made some changes while he was at the county, none of which have been undone by his successor, who is from another party. And I should note that the 2020 election, although Fontes ran it as a, as a Democrat, the County Board of Supervisors, which is dominated by Republicans, has stood behind his work and defended it um, at great cost, frankly, I mean, both financially and politically and, and personally. So that's his his big card. Plus, he Fontes in campaign appearances can really sort of stir up a crowd with you know calls for people that this is a very pivotal moment in our democracy, and we need people who will stand up and talk back and push back against the big lie of that the election was stolen. And that's something that he's done um, many times. He's he is a very vocal um, and passionate candidate. Is there anything substantively that separates uh, Fontes and Bolding on how they would want to run the office or their view on how voting should be done or anything that really voters can see as a clear split between them? There's nothing that's emerged thus far. They both are proponents of how the election has been run. They defend the 2020 results. And like all candidates, you know, they talk more about engaging voters, going out, meeting voters where they're at, expanding voter registration. So there hasn't been any kind of real substantive policy distinctions between them. It's more goes to their experience. So let's continue on that theme here for a moment. People seem to be drawn to this race uh, as being more than just counting ballots or administering certain state responsibilities. They're casting this as about basic election fairness and the future of voting in Arizona. Are the stakes really that high? Is it, is it broader than, than what we would normally think of? I do think. Um, look at the legislation that's been introduced at the state capitol that could, if um looks like it's not going to happen, but that could radically revamp how our elections are run. The secretary of state's in a position, that's who certifies election results. You know, you might want to think about that, you know, as you cast your ballot. You, we have a lot of national groups that are coming in, bringing attention right now mostly to the uh, Republican side of the race, but also to support then the Democratic side, presumably when we get uh, past the primary. So I do think that um, it might sound a, sound a little overblown, but there are big concerns about how our elections will be conducted and the role of the Secretary of State in overseeing that. And people might want to pay a little more attention to who are these folks and what their plans are. And then always, as happens every time we have one of these elections, it's important to remind people that the Arizona Secretary of State is next in line to become governor. Um, and that happens in Arizona. It's happened a number of times, you know, over the last three decades. Well, Mary Jo, thank you for going over all this with us. If listeners want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? At Mary J. Pitzel, and that's P-I-T-Z-L. Before we go, we have a bit of news of our own. Yvonne Winget Sanchez, the longtime host of this show and just about my favorite person in the world, has taken a job with The Washington Post. She'll be covering the state of democracy in America from right here in Phoenix. That means we're saying goodbye to the woman who helped build this show into what it is today. She interviewed Vice President Mike Pence for the gaggle. Secure theirs. 
Given the reporting by the Washington Post, we have to ask, did you knowingly participate in a campaign to pressure Ukraine to get involved in any matters involving Joe Biden and his son? Well, as President Zelensky of Ukraine has said, uh, he felt no pressure. You heard her press Senator Martha McSally and Mark Kelly on their 2020 Senate campaigns. But after reading the reports, do you did you walk away thinking that that the reporting on this by the New York Times was accurate, that the Kremlin um, placed bounties on the heads of, of U.S. troops. I obviously am not going to share what I've read in classified information. So I'm not asking what you read. I just want to know how you feel after reading the material. Nice we explored the legacy of Senate Bill 1070. In April 2010, Arizona enacted the Support Our Law Enforcement and Safe Neighborhoods Act, better known as SB 1070. The state law required police officers to ask about the legal status of anyone they thought might be in the country illegally. From the start, critics slammed the legislation for codifying racial profiling by the police. They were still going to see our skin color. They were Together, we learned a lot and laughed even more. You've heard her insightful questions and picked up on her effervescent personality. And unless you've seen the ancient gaggle video shows, you may not have seen her luminous smile. But yeah, she's all that. Her enthusiasm is infectious, and her ambition for this show was boundless. I'm lucky to have worked with her and already miss her more than I can say. So thanks, Yvonne. One of the best parts about my job here at the Arizona Republic has been um, being able to work with Ron, who obviously has grown into one of my best friends and um, closest colleagues, and also the Gaggle team. And I am going to miss the flying by the seat of our pants efforts to prepare for interviews, exclusive interviews, the well thought out scripts that we pour our hearts and souls into on some of those scripted shows like SB 1070 and of course, Democracy in Doubt. And while I'm going to tremendously miss working uh, with this team, I am only going to be two miles south of Ron, and I'm going to continue to stay close and, of course, continue listening to The Gaggle now as a loyal subscriber, not a co-host. So thank you to our listeners for sticking with us through our hundreds of episodes, our wild afterthoughts, and... uh, My favorite of all time episodes, you guys are going to have to go back and pull it up. I believe it is the best moments of the 2018 election cycle year, which demonstrates what happens when you let two reporters who love their jobs and love each other fly and have a hell of a lot of fun. So thanks to The Gaggle and thanks to AC Central. So Yvonne... Before we let you go, tell us a bit about what your new gig is going to entail. I'm going to be covering the future of democracy in Arizona and what that looks like. This is something that I really became passionate about during the aftermath of the 2020 election cycle. Obviously, uh, our series Democracy in Doubt really clarified for me what I wanted to do next. And um, I've been with the paper for 21 years. This was an opportunity to really singularly focus on an issue. And I'm not going anywhere. I get to continue to cover the people, 
the candidates, the issues that I've been covering sort of piecemeal during the last two decades here in Arizona. And I get to sort of step back and holistically take a look at what this all means for the future of democracy uh, in the United States from the vantage point of the Southwest. So I'm not going anywhere, just having a different role. Well, on behalf of the gaggle, AZ Central and the Arizona Republic, thank you so much for everything you've done for 21 years. And we look forward to seeing your work in the future. Thank you guys so much. That is it for today, Gaggle listeners. We'll continue our coverage of Arizona's midterms over the next several weeks. If you missed it, be sure to check out last week's episode on the legislative races and how they'll affect Arizona's future. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And while we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Amanda Liberto. Do you have questions about Arizona's politics? Maybe there's an issue on your mind as we head into election season. Well, we want to hear from you. You can now send us a note to thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's Arizona Republic, one word, all spelled out. Or leave us a message at 602-444-0804. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.